are you one of up to half the people who've had COVID who's still experiencing symptoms after the fact? That's today's show, Long COVID. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 296 and I have a show on long COVID. I've been wanting to do this show for a while. I've been having a look at what all of the different voices in various aspects of uh, the medical and health community are saying, how they're looking after patients and clients, uh, what different modalities are being used with success. And I wanted to bring on a guest who was very much across the research that is at the absolute forefront of what the biggest successes are in the face of long COVID. And this came about because I'm on Twitter. I really am am just on there for personal interest, uh, very interested in politics, political history, tennis, and a few other things. And Twitter is just a place that I can organize all of that stuff uh, really easily. And I've been looking at COVID as a subject, and I always look at things from sides that challenge my worldview as, as well as ones that support it, because I think that's how we stay in the gray area, uh, flexible thinking, critical thinking. And something that breaks my heart is seeing how many doctors feel absolutely helpless to, um, you know, in the face of patients who are coming to them with long COVID symptoms in droves. And I'm just sharing uh, research. I'm sharing research on natokinase for high D-dimer because that's something I had after uh, long COVID, um, which can increase your risk of stroke and heart attack and clotting. So that was a, a really um, a, a big one for me and, and thankfully had my integrative GP uh, support me through that. Um, but not only that, uh, things like brain fog, things like nerve issues, uh, tachycardia, POTS, uh, tinnitus, uh, so many things that I actually have experienced on my chronic inflammatory response syndrome journey from mold and water damage, uh, that, and, and, you know, some of you might be listening out there who have had a tick-borne illness, who've had a mosquito-based virus in the past, um, that has reactivated uh, glandular fever, that has reactivated, potentially uh, contributed to chronic um, fatigue syndrome. The thing with long COVID is it's a once in a lifetime that we see a a disease pass through that many people at once, that we get that many people at once affected by long-term effects. And I see potentially a teeny tiny little silver lining in this where we can finally, and we're seeing the research, finally see the light of day for people who have post-viral illness, post-tick-borne illness, biotoxin-related illnesses. And I think the research that's going to come out during this long COVID uh, um, epidemic is going to benefit many communities around the world. Um, so, you know, there, there's always a positive uh, in even the most awful of situations. And if you look at the stats, we have 
Something like around 45 to 49% of people presenting with uh, long-term after effects after having had a COVID COVID infection. So whatever your stance on uh, however we protect ourselves or prepare ourselves uh, or deal with COVID itself, this post-COVID situation is a big deal. Uh, it's affecting uh, anyone and everyone. And while this, the research is still coming out on the most affected populations and potentials as to why, what we can definitely do is start to bring some fantastic holistic health knowledge to this space. I've connected doctors online with naturopathic physicians, naturopaths, uh, homeopaths, acupuncturists. My acupuncturist has had fantastic results uh, supporting his patients experiencing long COVID symptoms. Uh, There's a lot of great work being done and I really think this is an opportunity for us because so many people are affected. It's impossible to ignore. It's impossible to wait for drugs. Uh, We really need to use whatever is working. And uh, I have a wonderful naturopath talking to us today about what is working. So I really hope you enjoy this show. If you or someone you know has been affected, I would so greatly appreciate if you shared this information. We've presented it in a really loving, supported way. Uh, You know me, I absolutely adore the incredible magic of critical care. If it wasn't for doctors and surgery, I would not be alive with my son today, uh, thanks to an emergency Caesar. Many of you have stories like this, and I'm not a black and white thinker for these reasons. You know, there's always a great aspect to to these um, incredible medical interventions, and then there are holes, there are gaps, and we also need to recognise those holes and gaps and see what naturopathy uh, and giving the body the tools it needs to heal Uh, as a way forward in this, whether they're nutritional tools, lifestyle tools, nervous system support, acupressure, acupuncture, uh, homeopathic support, um, gosh, I could go a herbal support, so many things that we can do to to set the body up for success in its recovery. Now is the time for all of the health community, uh, medical or holistic, to come together and support patients and start chatting to each other and sharing resources because way too many people are being affected to ignore this. So who's the guest? It's Carla Wren. Now I came across Carla because we're going to be doing a show on uh, integrative oncology and naturopathic support in oncology uh, coming up. And Carla is a fully qualified naturopath. She's been practicing for over 20 years. She's a member of the Australian Traditional Medicine Society, Institute of Functional Medicine and Society of Integrative Oncology. She studied for five years in the Australian College of Natural Medicine, uh, with a Bachelor of Health Science in Naturopathy and a Diploma in Naturopathy, Nutrition, Herbal Medicine and Classical Homeopathy. Very, very well educated uh, woman who has been relentless in her quest for the best research uh, and the best uh, combinations of therapies to support incredibly difficult medical cases through her naturopathic practice. She has been very closely studying long COVID. She's going to be sharing some really important research with us today. And I know, I know hand on heart because I have seen it and experienced it myself. 
that this is going to be helpful for just so many people. So I really appreciate your help in getting this information out there uh, for our little show. Much, much appreciated. Now, I have a couple of fantastic sponsor offers for you today to just share before I hook in. A huge thank you, as always, to Oz Climate. Uh, definitely a good idea to have a really good quality air filter at home right now, especially if you are experiencing long-term effects of COVID and you definitely don't want to be catching any other logies that are around. Having a good quality air filter is probably a really good idea. In fact, we know it is. Uh, so the Winix air purifiers that Oz Climate has, I would encourage you to have a look. We have a couple of the compact four-stage Um, really cute little uh, filters in each of our bedrooms. Fantastic for smoke, dust, pets, viruses, bacteria, mold, allergies. Uh, I could go on. Agricultural chemicals, cooking fumes. Uh, If you have gas heating, uh, all all very, very helpful to have uh, an air filter and you have 10% off all year round. That's ozclimate.com.au. You use the code LOWTOXLIFE. And if you're not sure which size unit to get for your home, give them a buzz and you can talk them through your floor plan and layout and they can actually help you find the perfect unit. Now, one super exciting new offer I have from you for you for the next two weeks only comes from the wonderful Solid Technics range. Now, I'm so excited to bring you guys an offer because I know... This is Exy cookware. This buying for once in a lifetime multi-generation cookware is not going to be cheap, right? You buy quality so that you can stop buying the cheap thing over and over and over again. Now that's great for landfill and it's also great for our pockets in the long term, but for the toxic aspect of all of that cheap cookware that we're going to stop using, Teflon coatings, PTFE coatings, Bye-bye PFAS, we are going for either our nickel-free stainless steel or for our beautiful uh, iron range of uh, cookware from the Solid Technics crew. Now, I had Mark on the show recently, actually. If you want to check out that show, Mark uh, from Solid Technics, who's the founder, um, he's a fantastic guy, uh, an engineer by background and very passionate about building a business for people and planet and that's from his team that he cares for and loves so much, but also out there to all people so that we can cook with healthy cookware. This offer is awesome. It is to spend $279 on anything in the range and receive a free 21 centimeter Oz Iron Lightning Pan worth $109. Your code at the checkout is LOWTOX. This is valid from the 15th to the 31st of August, and that is it. So I encourage you to make the most of that offer. It is a very sweet one and it'll mean you'll get two pieces of cookware instead of one uh, for the same price, which is just amazing. Uh, That offer is a single shop offer only. Uh, can't be used again by the same person, and uh, I can't recommend this range enough. If you want to deep dive into the range, uh, please feel free to have a listen to that show I did with Mark Henry, the founder, a few weeks ago. Um, And then I have a little teaser for something that's coming. They're actually launching soon on Kickstarter, Solid Technics 
kitchen tools, which I'm very pumped about. Uh, so that's coming up, but for now you can spend $279 on anything in the range and receive a 21 centimeter Oz Iron Lightning Pan worth $109. And your code at the checkout is LOWTOX. So go check out the Solid Techniques Australia website, head to the shop and see what you might like to get. And now let's go help a bunch of people start to feel better and start to feel hope with this week's show on long COVID with naturopath Carla Wren. Enjoy. Hello, Carla. How are you doing? Great. Thank you. I am so excited to have you here. This is a big topic. Uh, and I think in medical and practitioner circles, colleagues I've been chatting to, uh, so many people say, oh, yeah, finally the world's taking notice of long time to clear virus uh, style illness. Um, and I think it's not that no one cared before, but when when only tiny groups of people go through things here, there, uh, you know, we tend to all just find each other online and help each other out. But this is a time when so many people have had this virus pass through them. And so therefore, for the first time in many generations, we've had a situation where heaps and heaps, and that means millions and millions are experiencing this long time to clear this virus and the after effects of that and the um, after effects of the damage that it does. Uh, so it's helping the world take notice of the many ways that many viruses can do this, which is a silver lining, right? Do you see that as a practitioner? Totally. I've been a practitioner for around 21 years now and we've always dealt with, um, you know, viral reactivation and problems after uh, glandular fever or just immune dysregulation issues. And you think of conditions um, that were way back in the 80s and 90s issues that are thought to be um, all in the people's heads, you know, whether it be fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome. And then obviously that progressed um, with some of the other illnesses that we no doubt will talk about. And, and they um, have just been, yeah, swept aside, like you said, as uh, not necessarily um, accepted and supported in the same way someone might be if they had another chronic disease, let's say cancer or something like that. Oh, I know, right? I mean, I remember thinking when I had SIRS, at the start of my journey when it was just you were in the dark like I was I literally felt like the only human who'd ever experienced <laughs> this and at one point when I was so sick I thought I might need a wheelchair uh, I remember thinking my own family and friends like people are kind of you can feel the energy of distancing because it's like I don't get what's going on there so I'm going to just try and ignore it and uh, I was like, I think this would have been easier if I could have called this cancer. A hundred percent. And I, we see that in practice, even with people. Uh, and, you know, my MO is trying to find the problems in the bloods and, and to a certain extent be able to find the bit of paper that says something's wrong as well as a solution. But mm. so many people come and they've been told everything's fine on the tests. Yeah. And there is no diagnosis name. And, you know, that term invisible illness really resonates for lots of my patients. And we just can't find what's wrong. But the person knows 
when they feel like they're dying or they feel really, really ill. And, and that long COVID definitely has an element of that. And I think when you see um, like New Scientists and Time Magazine and the New York Times and all of those um, journals, but also esteemed, very mainstream um, media outlets putting long COVID on their front cover mm. and dedicating huge articles to it, we know that there's um, a newer problem um, that's experiencing um, issues for far more people than perhaps um, some of the other problems have in the past and just not got the same recognition. Yeah, absolutely. And you're someone who obviously trawls the research. I don't know how you find time to do it, but you are so well researched. Um, what have you seen start to emerge in terms of um, the breadth of this problem, long COVID? In patients or in the research or both? Uh, both, yeah. Yeah, so I certainly think that the uh, if we just look at the research and what really inspired me to um, kind of go down the rabbit hole on long COVID is I, I saw it in my clinic and I have a real philosophy um, behind if I can't help the, practi- the patient and I'm not the best practitioner for them to refer. Um, mm. But the problem was I didn't know who to refer to yeah. because being in Australia, I think we're a little bit behind the eight ball and I had some connections overseas that were able to kind of point me in the directions or give me avenues to really go down that rabbit hole. So I decided... I'll do it. And mm. look, I, it's quite fascinating from an external point of view. I have had COVID and I didn't get long COVID. So it's easy for me to be fascinated. But I know for the sufferers, there's nothing fascinating about it. But the research was huge. Already mm. there was starting to be a big body of evidence. But what was even more exciting for me was that there were things that I could use yeah. and that my colleagues could use. So there's uh, uh, excitement when they start to research. But quite often that information is not actionable. You know, we've all seen papers when we've been looking at our own health concerns that are, you know, far off drugs or far off therapies that we can't access either here in Australia or or are still unavailable around the world and and that's a problem but long COVID had some things we could do now and things that I could teach patients to do now which is the other exciting thing because um you know this is a costly thing to have happen to someone um Mm. and so being able to teach people how to take control of their own health which I know is something you're really passionate about and do some things in their own lives to make a difference is is great to see in the research as well yeah absolutely and And do you see in terms of the tools that started to show up that you could use for patients clinically, do you see an overlap with some of the other um, viral reactivation tools you've used in the past? Yeah, complete overlap. I think it's a... um uh, it goes both ways. I mean, there's papers that are researching multiple conditions and long COVID is one of them. And, and you see those parallels in those papers. But I think it's reaffirming everything we've known as practitioners about um, the type of conditions that we were talking about, where there really was um, uh, answers, but they were loose and, and really based in um, complementary medicine practice, practices, maybe in integrative medicine. And there's yeah, just more and more support for those. And I think the funding that's going to go in to this is going mm. to lead to lots more answers for people with those outlying conditions that have very similar um, drivers or causes. Mm. And I, as I was watching your practitioner webinar to do my research before we got to chat today, one of the things I was thinking of, and I thought, oh, I really want to ask Carla about this because Something that came up was immune dysregulation as a, as a post effect, uh, but also neuroinflammation. And it made me then think, gosh, if we have the neuroinflammation piece here, then we have the potential for that multi-system disordered thing to follow. Um, 
And, and you know, it makes me think of EBV and some of the, that's Epstein-Barr virus, sorry, beginner's mind, uh, for people who then see this link between that and MS. So I'm thinking, oh my gosh, if we don't address this global neuroinflammation epidemic that's coming from long COVID, uh, who knows what kind of neurological uh, uh, implications that might have yeah, really, really quite think, soon down the track, right? Yeah, I think the number is endless. And you see this, you know, when I, you look at the first couple of papers from 2020 looking at long COVID or really they were, call, they were calling it post-viral kind of symptoms, there was a group of about 40 symptoms. And it really just looks like the picture of EBV post-virally or any other kind of post-viral immune dysregulation issue prior to being diagnosed as, you know, any particular um, autoimmune disease or other immune regulation issue. But as that neuroinflammation and also mast cell activation um, and the, um, the, her, uh, the deficit that's happening, um, you really start to see that symptom picture expand out. And at the moment, I'm not in the deep dive stage. I've pulled back a little bit to work on another project, but I still listen to it all and see it going past and I'll get, get back to that research soon. But what I'm seeing is it's like 260 symptoms associated with long COVID and 268 symptoms and the numbers are just going up and up and that's because of our interplay with our genetics and our past health and the weak spot is where that inflammation is going to go and where those symptoms are going to be experiencing exactly like you said with that EBV um, uh, MS connection. EBV has been associated with 88 autoimmunities uh, and diseases yeah. and, and that same pattern is going to happen. It's just where's your weakness and, you know, what's your loaded gun genetically when, when sadly COVID or long COVID or the post-viral issues pull that trigger. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and so, okay, how many people as a percentage are we seeing have varying degrees of long COVID? Yeah, so the research varies greatly. Um, I'll talk about children first because there's some really great Royal Children's Hospital research um, that was completed recently and they were saying about 8% of children uh, in their study uh, through Melbourne um, who had uh, COVID would develop long COVID. But very quickly, um, that stat dropped right down to 2% because they took out all of the kids who had resolving respiratory issues because the respiratory issues tend to be a real key in children. And I guess that makes sense in that um, the the ACE2 uh, deficit that happens in, in children and, and, well, everyone that gets COVID is specifically targeting the respiratory system as we would conditionally, uh, traditionally think of this virus. And then that results and there's not too many children left. So somewhere between 8 and 2%, although really interesting stats happen with children in that because of the um, trauma, I'm going to call it, that they went through, particularly here in Melbourne, around all the lockdowns, there are children who are exhibiting long COVID who've never had long COVID. And so this real mash of... You mean um, who've never had COVID? Who've never had COVID, sorry. Yeah, who've yeah. never had COVID. Yes, thank you for correcting me. And so this really mash of symptoms because so many of these children have been so uh, detrimentally affected by the environment around them. So really interesting stats on that. From an adult perspective, it goes anywhere from 20% up to 80%. Now, I'm not seeing 80% of my patients who've had um, COVID experiencing long COVID, but it depends on the measurement. Mm, and so exactly. one yeah. symptom for more than four to six weeks after COVID, then that tickle that you've still got when you have a cold drink or something counts, you know. Mm. And so it, the definition's a little bit loose, but I'm going to say I feel like it's around 40%. 
which is still a lot of people and a, and a big public health problem going forward. Mm-hmm. Huge. Um, yeah. So can we talk about then um, why we think naturopaths are so well-placed to help long COVID patients? Like what is it that you guys study and learn that the medical doctors don't have in their toolbox? And this is not to say that they're, you know, not as good a professional, but it, it just feels like naturopaths have been working on that. Let's set the stage for the body to heal itself. Ideology theory um, that uniquely places you guys as incredible um, support during this time. Yes, and I think we all accept exactly like you said that if you're in the acute stages of COVID and you've got respiratory distress, you don't want to see me. You know, mm. some things I would suggest, but yeah. you know, I don't want you in my office and <laughs> Absolutely. you don't want to see me. And so once that acute care um, is resolved, mm. uh, it becomes about building the person's well-being. And I think we're really placed to understand some of those key drivers of health complaints. And until the medical system um, is able to develop things to target those drivers, they're at a bit of a shortfall of what they're able to do. So there's some great integrated doctors, and I'd also say I think nutritionists are very well placed to help in this as well. But if we can't find the tool to support, let's say, um, the ACE2 deficit, which is a key driver, mm. um, or mast cell activation, if the, if the GP or the doctor or the medical team doesn't have a tool to interface with that, they can't necessarily improve the outcome. Now, the really awesome thing is the research that's been done has given us some hints about what kind of tool it needs to look like. So is it a spanner or is it a hammer? Mm. And then as complementary medicine practitioners, we can go back and look at our tools and go, okay, do we have that hammer that targets that that pathway or that um, interplay in the immune system or that inflammation so that we can help to address that using what we know already about those complementary medicines, maybe from history of use in EBV or in other neuroinflammatory conditions. Mm. And so we can quickly adopt um, what we know from the past. And also, I guess the other big benefit is complementary medicines are generally not dangerous. Mm. Now, there are some caveats to that if you're on other medications or you have some unique allergies, but we also have the opportunity to try things without the risk of making the person worse. And that's not necessarily true for pharmaceuticals. A lot of time has to be taken to check safety um, before those things can be enacted and we can rely on our traditional knowledge to understand that a bit more Mm. um, quickly and and effectively. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then something I wanted to ask and you briefly alluded to it when you were talking about the children with long COVID who'd never had COVID um do we have an element of PTSD implicated in long COVID either from having an acute presentation of it or from the collective intensity of a pandemic 100%. Both of those are relevant, in my opinion. The studies are still coming out on that, and I think it's kind of the background stuff, but there's definitely discussions around stress um, and trauma um, and and some around PTSD, and I see that very clearly with my patients, and maybe you're hearing that from your tribe as well, that the 
people may have been dealing with this, whatever their feelings are over the last two plus years and all the impacts that's had on our lives. Then they finally get that virus that they've been you know, taught to worry about. And no matter what their health concern I'm, or healthy background, they could be very, very fit and healthy. They could have lots of comorbidities. They're still really worried. Like I finally got this thing I've been trying to avoid for so long. And I think that stress has such a huge impact on the immune system, on inflammation and has a knock-on effect. And for many people, the financial stress and all of those things that have come with the pandemic are then amplified by the fact that they can't get well and they can't get back to work. And I think that all just turns into a terrible uh, stress for them. So definitely helping with um, modifiable lifestyle factors that are going to help with stress or their Mm. ability to cope with stress, meeting them where they're at is an important part of what we do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Now, you've mentioned ACE2 a couple of times, so I feel like I want to go into some uh, key COVID-related terminology so that people can understand, A, what that means, but a few of the other things that we're going to then talk about as being implied in really turning long COVID around potentially for many, many people. So let's just do a recap on what ACE2 is it's significant to the actual virus and then it's significance post-virally. Yes, sure. So I think the the virus itself is quite different to other things we've experienced. And one of the challenges that we have is um, that spike protein. And we've all heard so much about the spike protein. We don't want to hear anything more about it, but how it's relevant in all of this is how it interplays with that ACE2 response. Receptor site. Now, the ACE2 receptor site, if I try and simplify it all a bit, has a lot of actions in the body. It controls a real diverse range of issues. And that's where COVID becomes a multi system disease because no longer is it just impacting the respiratory system, it starts to affect the, um, the circulatory system. It has impacts that are, that are quite far reaching. And a lot of that is because of the changes that this spike protein attached into this ACE2 receptor has. So when it's attached in there, it blocks the ACE2 to enzyme getting in there. And without that enzyme, lots of processes can't happen. So when these processes can't happen, we start to see illness and symptoms, traditionally things like that respiratory stuff, but then spreading right out to lots of other problems, all because of this issue with uh, the ACE2 deficit, um, because that ACE2 enzyme can't get to where it's, its home is. And that, you know, it can go from chest pain to brain fog, um, to blood vessel issues, to gut dysfunction, like diarrhea, like it really has quite a huge impact on the body that we didn't really think about prior to um, long COVID or COVID rather and it's spike protein. Mm -hmm. And would that be, and I'm certainly not trying to open up a controversial can of worms or just stating facts, would that be why so many people have had issues with the vaccinations as well? Potentially, yes. I mean, I think with the vaccine, there's lots of different um, challenges, but sure, I think, um, and there's been some really interesting studies done on this uh, now coming out um, to do with long COVID and the vaccination and also autoimmunity um, with and without the vaccinations. And I think it is a big part to play in what's going on and quite a unique target that um, causes lots of lots of detrimental problems when it doesn't work. Mm, yeah. Okay, so uh, how do we ensure that our ACE2 receptors, and I I don't know if this is the right biochemical language, um, are not in deficit? How do do we protect ACE2? It's... It's tricky, and that's a big part of what they're trying to find out, but I'll tell you what I know so far, is it's stuck. 
the puzzle piece is stuck. And for some people, it won't come out. So mm. when we can't get or cleave this um, big enzyme or, or protein molecule out, um, it becomes a problem. One of the things we know of, and there's a really great interest, uh, researcher, uh, Dr. Galland, um, who's doing lots of information. You might be able to find some links to his research. He talks about first step um, is we need enough protein. And if we're not having protein, we're not able to pull apart and dig out that spike protein. So just even starting with having a reflection on, is there enough protein in your food? Um, and, and are you um, in yourself having a protein deficit makes a big difference. Wow. So if you're eating food that maybe is plant-based or um, you're restricting the type of proteins you're consuming in any way, we want to make sure we're getting all of those essential amino acids. And that's something simple that can be done. Some of the researchers are looking in long COVID in just giving um, as part of the key therapies uh, protein powders that provide all the amino acids at a level that ensures the diet is fortified to do this process as well as possible. Mm -hmm. Lots of other factors, lots of information coming out, but um, that's that's a key start. And then thinking also about the herbs and other nutrients that we can use that do interplay into um, the ACE2 cycle. Um, and I guess that's that's where more learning is happening too. Yeah. And is there anything that you have used some, some favorite herbs in that aspect? Yeah, I would definitely say curcumin. It is one of my favorites. Um, curcumin um, at a moderate dose, not too high dose, uh, resveratrol, uh, vitamin D, alpha-lipoic acid, NAC. Um, so things that people might already be trying. Um, and I think it's trying to understand in long COVID and maybe I'm jumping ahead a bit here is what the drivers are. That yeah. Everyone's going to have an ACE deficit because that's how the problem starts. But Got then it. it filters out from there. Mm. Um, mast cell activation would be one of those things. And so um, keeping in mind about the type of therapies you might be choosing and are they targeting the drivers that might be a problem for you if you're suffering from long COVID? What I don't want to see people doing is taking all of the things. It's mm. really picking out what's um, across all of the things that you might feel are your drivers or a, th a practitioner might have suggested your, are your drivers and trying to choose things that cover off a lot of those, keeping your supplements simple. Yeah, got it. Um, and what would be the negative effect of taking all of the things? Uh, nothing, especially <laughs> except that it's very costly. Yeah. Um, and I actually have this whole theory, and I guess it comes back a little bit to the work I do in oncology as well. We're so lucky we have a huge toolbox. You saw the resource I produced for practitioners. There's not a shortage of things we can try. Mm. But I feel concerned that when someone's not on their best day, so they're very depleted, um, and maybe you experience this in your journey as well, taking too many things can almost stir too much up. And so we, we want to go slowly so we see what changes. Let's just theoretically say someone took curcumin. And they noticed X, Y, Z changing. It's like peeling the layers off the onion. For me as a practitioner, knowing what's left helps me figure out what to target next. If I give them everything in the kitchen sink and they get worse, what did I just do? And if I give them everything in the kitchen sink and they get better, what did I just do? And also, what do they need to keep taking to maintain that? Um, so it's sometimes better, in my opinion, just a few key supplements really targeting those drivers because the toolbox is huge. We can come back to it, but we just need to know what we're doing in each stage. Mm, absolutely. And just um, from a genetic, um, nerdy genetic standpoint, if you yeah. think of the CYP450 enzymes, right, there, some people are going to just like 
200 milligrams, a tiny dose of curcumin would be like the max you would give because their enzymes actually can't handle more than that. And And then someone else might be an overprocessor and need to take two grams of the stuff just to touch the sides. And Mm. what I'm finding with long COVID patients is, yes, some of their patients I've been working with for a long time, they have other health complaints, but there's a lot of people who are experiencing um, chronic disease for the first time. Mm. So they don't have these answers about themselves. They've never once thought about um, what could be um, my CYP status, you know. And so I don't actually know what it is and it may not be relevant relevant to test at that stage. So starting gently Mm. is very, very wise with these patients. And I do think um, a bit like uh, in some of um, the SIRS and Lyme-like Uh, cases uh, that a lot of my colleagues will deal with drop dosing of individual herbs is sometimes a great place to start so that you you can always dose up but Mm. if you've overdosed it's hard to to dose down so yeah go sensibly um, and sensitively um, if you if you feel like you're that kind of person Mm. now you've mentioned mast cells so I feel like that's where we need to go next with our definitions and what to do Yeah, so mast cells are really key in the immune system and we might know them most frequently um, because we've all experienced like a mosquito bite that just does not stop itching. And what mast cells are, they're um, a a cell, I think of them like a little Pac-Man, they split open and they release histamine. Mm -hmm. And histamine is super helpful at the right times. Um, So when we have a bite, the the swell is to try and um, heal up the injury and the trauma from that bite. Uh, But the mast cells in uh, COVID uh, become, or long COVID, can become um, uh, unstable and, and the uh, a level of histamine being produced is problematic and that can be a key driver for some people. And that mast cell activation syndrome um, picture of um, whether it be itching right through to swelling, right through to all the systemic issues that become like multi-systems um, can be an interplay here. So that mast cell activation syndrome research really fits in here um, as a, a potential trigger or driver for mm-hmm. some patients too. And in terms of the toolkit there, do we do low histamine diet for a certain time? Do we look at things like quercetin, nettle, yada, yada? hundred percent. So um, I think the low histamine diet in the research has been shown to be just used temporarily um, Mm. because remember, we're coming back to that idea of protein as well. And we, we know that the low histamine diet can pull some really healthy foods out. So definitely as a temporary initiative, and I like it because it's something people can do at home and it's not costly. Mm. Um, Then we think of things like um, uh, nigella, which I love, um, albizia as a herb, bicycle, skullcap, rosemary, the the list is endless. Perella, uh, Lipoic acid, vitamin C, um, uh, melatonin is another one that I love. Uh, you mentioned quercetin, PEA. So it's really anything to mop up um, that histamine and start to get some control of the mast cells. There's also been some great research on a couple of specific um, probiotic species too, which is good to see. Oh, fab. Which ones? Um, so LGG, which is one that I mm. love, like the bacillus rhamnosus. Um, and there's a couple of bifidobacteria animalis and a few different ones um, that aren't yet available in Australia, but you'll be able to get a couple of the rhamnosus species and the bifidobacterium um, animalis already. So um, good ones to think of uh, as another way of targeting multiple drivers. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and given that long COVID has a, a, a gut, um, component for many people as well, then that's that's a two birds with one stone. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So the gut issues can go for up to three months. Uh, mm. I think it's probably longer, but that's the research level microbiome disruption um, post the initial COVID infection can last for three months. So um, we know for some people that that diarrhea or just changes in their gut function can be quite pronounced. And so um, looking at how we can support the um, intestinal permeability and the microbiome, um, it, it has quite a bit of research on it already. Yeah, that's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we've got to hand it to everybody who's working on this around the world for how quickly it's starting to come together. Yes. Something you just mentioned there was PEA, and quite a few people don't know that one. What is it? And just, it goes beyond mast cells, right? It goes into mitochondrial um, support. Yeah. I feel like we don't even completely understand where how far it goes yet. It was a um, PEA is short for a really long word that I'm hoping you're not going to ask me to ask. No, no, don't just, worry. Say <laughs> just, it, just call PEA. Um, <laughs> in my mind, PEA is relatively new to us. It naturally occurs in the body, but it has a whole lot of um, uh, amazing actions in chronic disease. I've been using it a lot in my patients with long COVID really around the neurological symptoms. So they talk a lot about zapping, zinging, um, burning, mm. um, tingling pains. Um, and PEA PEA is perfect for that. It really has its initial um, prescription or keynote would be a neurological pain um, or neurological sens uh, sensations, but it stems out into that um, neuronal inflammation, uh, joint joint pain, immune regulation um, into the uh, mitochondrial health. So another one that covers off lots of areas. Um, we're doing a lot of Australian research um, up in Brisbane on PEA. So I think the information will grow even more um, in the coming, I believe, months and years on PEA too. Mm. And do you feel like, just on the point of research, it feels like we're starting to get a lot more nutraceutical research uh, happening is that because they've seen it not only as obviously curious uh, scientifically but as a really profitable business uh, idea for getting the getting people well um, because you can't just do research if there's no money in it right I mean unfortunately uh, government research budgets are teeny tiny compared to yes. private research well, which is of course why we end up with cloudy ideas of what the best way to move forward are, which is a shame, but I feel like the boom in nutraceuticals is actually helping us get some solid research out for nutraceuticals. 100%. And, and we have to be really, really proud in Australia. We've won some awards, is my understanding, for our research in complementary medicine, and a big part of that stems back to funding. Um, I don't remember who or what political party um, and at what stage, but in, let's just say, the last 10 years, a large amount of money was given to the complementary medicine uh, industry through the University of Sydney, um, I believe, and um, a, a research body there, uh, the Complementary Medicine Association was involved, and then people like Morris Blackmores and also the Jacker family put mm. a lot of money. I'm talking millions and millions and millions of their personal family um, fortunes into research so mm. we are leaving the research with people like dr amy Steele, um john wardle there's a whole lot of naturopaths that have become really prominent researchers and are doing a huge amount for our industry but the research that they're you know providing they're doing a lot of cbd research the pea mm. research is being done by beth Steele's. that's all um adding to what we know for long covid but also what we know for complementary medicine so we're very lucky here in australia yes there is some um 
supplement company involvement. And certainly I know um, that that helps and mm. does lead directly to um, their ability to provide those products for practitioners and also in the retail market. But I think a big chunk of it is also that we have this backing from some pretty successful um, families and, and universities and, and the government as well. Yeah, fantastic. Mm. Uh, yeah, wow, that's that's great. It, it was all we actually, need to- Sorry, sorry. It's actually suggested at one point, um, and I remember a few years ago, uh, uh, I think it was John Adams did a um, presentation saying we have more money than we have researchers to do it. Mm. And they're encouraging naturopaths like myself to go over to research, to be able to do your PhD or whatever, to be able to then um, be involved in this research because the, the money was needing um, support to be spent and mm. and for that research to be done. So quite a phenomenal situation um, over the last number of years. Brilliant. Now we just need to get naturopaths back on the insurance schedules. A hundred percent. Feels like it is. A, it feels like it's time to do a push. I have to show you quickly because I was thinking about it as we were talking about it under my laptop because we got mm-hmm. some funny things under our laptop. Is this very heavy book that is um, a part of? So you'll see, Doctor. Oh, I love um, this. This is um, got Amy Steele's name and John Wardle's name. Some of those key researchers I re- mentioned, and this whole book, which I'll turn it around so you can see how big it is, um, is a book that was written in response to that issue that we have with the private health insurance, where they mm. said that there was no evidence. They produced this <laughs> big book on natural with all the evidence um, to try and work on that. So lots of people are behind the scenes doing that. And this is, yeah, naturopathy, practice, effectiveness, economics and safety. So a dry read, but nonetheless very exciting (laughs) um, to try and get us back on the insurance. Absolutely. I mean, wouldn't it just be amazing? I do love to just go off on a tangent when I'm with a great practitioner and have a little dream and think I've been admitted to hospital for my acute thing and then I have a counsellor available to me, I have a nutritionist available to me, and I have a naturopath available to me so that all the compliments can come together to really make me live my best life post-procedure. I mean, it's just a no-brainer when it comes to the cost of public health. 100%. That's what I was going to say. The dry side of that is, is the cost. But I think if we look at how this is going to go for long COVID with people who are unable to work and a landmark case did happen in the UK that classified uh, people unable to attend work because of a long COVID diagnosis as a disability so they're going to be supported by the government no doubt this will roll out in other countries that makes it a very costly thing let alone the health appointments that they require and um, if we're at the coalface being able to suggest some solutions that may um, improve their and it just fatigue just so they can get back to work um, it has to be looked at I think. Absolutely I can't um, unfortunately count the amount of times I've seen um, very well-meaning, incredible practitioners in acute COVID, so doctors on the front line, say, you know, they're linked to a long COVID statistical style article and say it's criminal that we don't have more tools. And I'll always very gently reply, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a fighter. I'm a, oh, have you thought of partnering with a naturopathic physician or a naturopath? Because, and then I'll list PEA, ubiquinol, like EPA, and all the things um quercetin yada yada and uh, you know are showing to have great results and I have not had yet one reply not one um couple of times I've started even including study links and like on natokinase for 
uh, for um, microvascular issues. And you just think, oh, please read it. Please, like everyone's got to start working together. This problem is huge. Yeah. I agree. And I think when we have those articles, like there's a really great article on adaptogens in long COVID. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's looking at rhodiola, Siberian ginseng and withania, um, three pretty safe uh, no, I got that wrong. It's rhodiola, Siberian ginseng, and schizandra. And they're pretty safe herbs. They do have some interactions that we would be mindful of. Um, the study is on a specific formulation, um, not one that's available in Australia, but that doesn't matter. We can use the herbal um, access that we have to replicate that study. And very quickly, it showed improvements in energy. And while all of the other problems are definitely devastating, I think the energy makes it hard for people to exist in their normal lives. Mm. And so even if one simple is targeted and we can get people just out of bed or, or moving in the direction of feeling a little bit more optimistic, I think that hope uh, really helps too. Absolutely. Um, and I just want to do a shout out to the acupuncturists out there who are getting people out of bed. I mean, my acupuncturist yes. is like, people literally get brought to me in a wheelchair for their treatments. And after three or four, they're no longer in the wheelchair. Um, yeah, they've really phenomenal. started to improve, which is incredible. I yes, just, and I didn't yeah. I didn't look at that research, but I am a very big fan of acupuncture, particularly in that neurological setting as well. Yes. So it's we are apart from the herbs, nutrients, and PEA, I'd say sometimes that neurological issue, particularly pain, um, is very much the pocket of acupuncturists because they're of their traditional understanding being quite different to ours mm. and they've been very able to target that, that symptom specifically too. So, yeah, I'd be interested to hear about the research that's coming out for them. No doubt um, China and other countries are really leading the way in, in that acupuncture research. Absolutely. Um, okay, so let's keep going on our definitions. I feel like I took us off on a massive tangent there, but there's all the really tangent. important stuff to talk yeah. about with an evolving topic, right? Yes. Um, okay, NERF2, what is it? Why does it matter to long COVID? Uh, yeah, it's part of the enflavosome. And so it's one of the drivers for inflammation that we need to think about. I think it's only one. There's going to be a whole lot more drivers. And certainly when you look at immune regulation issues and autoimmune diseases, you can see that lots of inflammation pathways are involved. Um, but understanding NRF2 um, and its implications uh, across um, the, the um, blood, the vasculature, um, and then more systemically is important. And it's something we can support using a number of different um, nutraceuticals and, and, and things that we've been using in the kind of other chronic diseases that we've been talking about in the past. Um, I would think, you know, about quercetin, like we mentioned, um, also things like garlic and um, ginkgo and bacopa and uh, a huge range of NRF2 um, pathway herbs. Mm -hmm. And as we talked about with curcumin, less is more to start with, then we weed out any potential allergies to plants or... I remember I gave my son Bacopa um, when we were working on his uh, focus a few years ago yes. and the poor little guy came out in welts and I was like, yeah. oh, my God, Whoops. okay, we're adding that to the Inkerberry allergy, the most yes. woke yes. possible allergy a child could ever have. My son and has it. Yes, and so. even as a practitioner, we have to do the same thing, go cautiously because we mm. just don't know. Um, what I loved when I presented this um, research initially at one of the associations that naturopaths and herbalists are registered with um, was the presentation right before me was an naturopath talking about working in a low socioeconomic area. She's actually making community care 
clinics that are owned by the community mm-hmm. and are, are funded and supported by growers in, in the area, just doing home herb growing. And it really reminded me, if you look at a list of NRF2 herbs, there's a lot you can get from your own kitchen and very cheaply. So turmeric, we, we, I use supplements that are, have a phospholipid bilayer and all of these things. But if you prepare turmeric appropriately, it can be a very cost-effective uh, therapy. Rosemary is another one that has specific research in long COVID. And mm. we can all go and pick a bit of rosemary. Everyone knows the rosemary bushes in their community. They might have one in their own garden. Um, if you know someone with long COVID, give them the rosemary and get them to make a, t- a tea, a strong steeped tea, green tea is another one fresh garlic, you know, these are things we can find in our own kitchen um, or our own gardens and be able to really start to make a difference, uh, even if cost is a problem. And it's and it's a bit safer to do it that way, like you mentioned with your son. Yeah, absolutely. And that brings me to thinking, you know, we've talked about the stress aspect. Again, many, many free interventions to bring that stress down of the whole situation and to really nourish ourselves, get lots of sleep, Start making these free teas if you've got the bush or the root plant in the backyard or a neighbour does. It doesn't all have to be expensive practitioner visits and, and supplements. Not at all. Mm. I think the modified lifestyle factors are huge for me because of my training in functional medicine and and they are really things like sleep rest and relaxation movement we call it and I think movement is the perfect word in long COVID Um, diet nutrition um, social connection and if we can have a little chat about that in a minute it's a really interesting one but if we jump back to movement um uh, my patients are the type some of the patients with long COVID are the type that have been doing not marathons but they're mummies that might have been doing you know the Mother's Day run, that kind mm. of thing, like active people. And I had a, a consult with a patient the other day uh, and she's having trouble walking her court, mm. just the court that she lives in, having been the, the mummy that did the Mother's Day run. And that's all right because movement is anything you choose to be, it to be. And so our plan for her was walk your court once a day. Uh, if you don't feel like it, don't do it that day, but walk your court once a day, an extra metre each day. And that's that pacing that really it's very slow, um, but we know if exercise is paced and slowly built upon, patients feel some in, uh, a sense of a, a achievement, um, mm. but they're also less likely to suffer from that very typical rebound fatigue or post-exertional malaise is the research term that happens if they try to do any more. Um, mm. And so really pacing um, is a huge thing, very challenging, but Many people who have had chronic fatigue syndrome and other multi-system diseases, like we talked about at the start today, are familiar with this pacing term and we can adopt that research for long COVID as well. 100%. And I think what you added there with the one extra metre a day is that psychological hope component. Uh, You know, you need to feel like you can do that tiny bit more um, because especially if you've been suffering from this for months or, I mean, this has been around since the start of 2020, so there might be people years into this. Definitely. Um, yeah. That sense of hope is pretty easy to lose if Definitely. every it's same shit, different day, I still feel awful. Um, mm-hmm. The story you're telling yourself is one, the opposite of hope. And so just walk to the kettle and then walk back and then do it again if you haven't done that before. Like do that extra little something. Yes, and if you're in bed, 
I think there's a bit of a, a picture happening that we're getting lots of people in bed not doing the opening the curtains and not getting outside and we're starting to see some changes in their um, circadian rhythms, which is mm. going to take them backwards. And I can uh, barely imagine what it would feel like to be unable to get out of, of bed or need help to go to the bathroom and prepare your food. But having the support um, or working up to sitting on the side of the bed, feeling comfortable doing that, and then feeling like you can get the curtains open or the window open, and then aiming just to get into a chair outside. That's an achievement for some people that have huge benefit um, compared to that terribly depressing downward slide of of just being in the bedroom. Mm. And I think this feels like an important time to mention circle back to PTSD, but also to um, the amygdala being thrown off by an acute or a chronic state where those stories do start to become super self-limiting and there is no sense of hope, um, to see if there might be uh, work you can do to retrain the brain uh, into hope. Uh, That is something that was a huge help for me in chronic illness Uh, I couldn't believe the symptom changes from purely adding in, uh, for me, it was the Gupta program, and I can put that in the show notes. For someone else, it might be QEC therapy sessions. For someone else, it might be DNRS. You can Google all of these. Uh, But if if the I have no hope story is playing in your COVID picture, your long COVID picture, uh, it really could be something to bring in. 100% and I would say from my kind of research in that area that neuroinflammation and the effects that it has um, on the hippocampus and the amygdala um, to make you in this place of um, worry, indecision, overwhelm, um, fear, um, it's biochemically changed the Inflammation has biochemically changed the sizes of those parts of your brain, which is yeah. phenomenal. Um, but anything you can do, I think of um, saffron and curcumin um, because they are able to cross the blood-brain barrier and their research on um, mood in, in this kind of uh, neuroinflammation setting. But they take up to six weeks to work. Mm. And so the type of things that you're talking about and and, the, and if I bring up that social support, they're all part of getting that hope back. And what we know um, from the research is if patients don't have social connection and that social connection can be online in the research that was done, is it, is it enough um, to be having connection with people um, virtually? And, and it was shown to improve them that if they don't have that social connection and support, um, then, they, then they don't get as better as quickly. And what... Um, you mentioned about feeling quite isolated from your loved ones when you were sick is a terrible side to this right when people might need people the most there is that element of people turning away or not being sure what to do or is it all in their head or just keep going I had COVID and I'm fine I felt yucky but I'm good now keep you know and and that lack of support or empathy can really play into that so it's it's a tricky time for many people yeah absolutely if a friend says or hey if if you don't hear from a friend that's a number one (laughs) for friends not saying anything that is an alarm bell big red flag uh if a friend is telling you they feel like absolute shit and they can't get through this believe them and say what can I do you don't have to understand it you don't have to do a lot of things even but you can say what is a way that I can help you this week and whether you understand what they're going through or not at least they'll feel supported and heard. And that really is one of the major, major things people need in a chronic situation. 
hundred percent. It's the little things. It's the getting the fresh fruit and vegetables and, um, you know, maybe helping uh, with their washing if you're a family member or have a close connection. You know, those kind of changing the bed, like just think that those things are impossible for some people at this stage and can make the world of difference um, mm. if you're able to support them. So, yeah, they're, they're not always asking for an answer either. They're just asking or a solution. They're just asking for um, support and to be heard and um I think it's important to try and reach out to those people you might know that have it as a reminder today. Yeah, absolutely. So it feels like this is a good time to talk about mitochondria, given we've just talked a lot about energy and can't even get out of bed and um, for crushing fatigue uh, that so many people are reporting. Uh, what are our mitochondria for the beginner's mind and how can we support them to become our best energy makers again perfect so um science 101 we always got to our mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell and literally they're in every cell in our body but they're in higher concentrations in places like the brains and the lungs so they're important for a whole range of elements but if you think that um glucose goes in from the food that we eat and atp adenosine triphosphate comes out that's the fuel that we use to um, fuel our whole body and then your mitochondria doesn't work. It's a bit like having a car with no petrol. Mm. And so we um, find a lot of cellular processes and then from then um, system processes and systemic processes not able to happen properly. And um, there's some really great interest, uh, interesting research from Dr. Robert Navajo on cell oh, danger yes. response, which you might have heard of before, which is just fascinating for the nerds amongst us um, and how this um, initial trauma or trigger that happens um, doesn't resolve when the patient gets stuck a bit like if the ambulance got stuck with the lights on just mm -hmm. never the cell stays in this threat situation doesn't resolve and pack up the inflammation and the mitochondria can't move on and uh, so we, we can't get past this initial threat um, but mitochondrial stress is a big picture or a big part of those drivers of chronic disease particularly around things like uh, fatigue and brain fog um, muscle weakness um, dysautonomia I no doubt we'll talk about and, and I believe it has a part to play in that particularly around blood sugar, blood pressure, um, sorry, blood pressure control and symptoms like POTS. And so, again, things like turmeric and green tea and garlic and Japanese knotweed, bilberry, the mushrooms, which I love, um, glutathione, you know, there's a whole range of lipoic acid, deribose, CoQ10, of course, CoQ10, how can I forget it till now? Mm. Uh, and carnitine are two of the most important ones for mitochondrial stress. So again, lots we can do adopting the theories that we've known uh, before about other conditions that have mitochondrial stress or mitochondrial dysregulation and how we can help in those. Yeah, incredible. Um, and do you feel like if someone were to just buy an over-the-counter supplement, of one of the ones that you've listed or from iHerb or whatever, is what's on the back a safe experimental dose in your own curiosity and it, you see a practitioner for the more hardcore dosages? Um, there's a couple of problems, but yes, to answer your question, yes, the dosage that would be listed would be a safe place to start for most people, assuming you're not that person that's sensitive to everything. Mm. Um, I feel like if you can buy an Australian brand, that would be better. There's a bit of an issue around regulation of other countries. Um, nutraceuticals in Australia were regulated by the TGA um, and the TGA has a standard that needs to be met. So if the label says, um, on my table here, I've got some um, oil of oregano, I'll show 
show you. So this is yeah. a practitioner brand. This is a sample product. Um, but it has a little code on the bottom here, the Ostel number. And that Ostel number means this is definitely going to have the 150 milligrams of oregano. It's going to have it now. It's going to have it when it was in the lab. Um, every time it's it's uh, within its expiry date, it'll have it. And unfortunately, American products um, are regulated by the FDA and don't have the same thing. So it's a little bit tricky to judge dosage because if it says 150 milligrams on the label, it may not have that in. Mm. And so then dosage becomes a little bit confusing. But generally, the majority of these are safe. Now, getting some advice or doing some research around any pharmaceuticals you're on and ensuring safety would be important too for some of the ones I've mentioned. Curcumin is a typical one. It really blocks the absorption of quite a few drugs taking in a number of hours away from pharmaceuticals can sometimes help but um yeah it's there are definitely good brands that are out there that you're able to get hold of um and they don't have to be expensive Mm, okay great thank you for that um now you mentioned dysautonomia what are we dealing with there how is it implied in long COVID and what do we do yeah, so dysautonomia really has a lot to do with how we control the, um, the different parts of our nervous system. Mm. So if we um, aren't feeling a connection between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system, we can notice some key changes. Now, POTS is one of them that is discussed quite regularly um, by long COVID sufferers. They, they feel dizzy when they stand up. They're suffering mm. from lots of heart palpitation. And it's like, we never think about regulating our heart rate. You never think, oh, I'm going to stand up now. I better go slowly so that my... Um, heart can catch up with Uh, the movement that's happening in my body but that's what long COVID people are having to think every time they move Mm. is this going to disrupt this um, autonomic process within the body that really should be happening automatically Um, now it's a tricky one because it is something quite new and certainly working on blood pressure and hydration can make a huge difference Um, but there's some really interesting research that's being done overseas um, in some uh, other countries where long COVID's been around for a little bit longer than the majority of people have been experiencing it in Australia and they found that breath work which is also something that you can do for yourself um, is really helpful and for the show notes I'll get you the the correct link but I could think it could be called stasis.life is the website um, that was recommended and it's a breath free breath work uh, website that's teaching you some ways to try and get some autonomic regulation back into your um, body and 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 taking it slow and pacing I think is also really important for those people brilliant thank you for that um, that's another one I discovered with mold. Uh, I had horrific dysautonomia. If I rolled over in bed, my heart rate would skyrocket by another 30, 40 beats a minute and have full palpitations. I think for about four hours, I'd just be awake until I literally got so exhausted that I'd fall asleep again. And so for anyone out there experiencing that, who thinks this is literally never going to end, It can. I just want to be a message of hope as someone who's experienced chronic illness. uh, It really can. And it's just about getting the support you need to navigate that. Most people are experiencing it because of COVID and long COVID. Um, But another thing to think about really is that we've been in our homes, especially if you've got long COVID, you're inside your house longer than you've ever been inside your house. And to make sure that house is healthy so you don't have a water damage situation on top of actually trying to recover from this virus. 
Totally. And you think of the people up in, um, you know, a large part of Australia really um, on that east coast that have suffered from lots of water damaged buildings at exactly the same time as they potentially could have been experiencing COVID. And I think, look, that's a whole um, research waiting to happen at the moment Mm. is what is the rate of long COVID in um, northern New South Wales and, and Queensland proportionate to the rate in other states because of the contributing factor of the the water around at that stage when they may have experienced it. It would be very interesting to to know if there's an increase because of that overlapping of SIRS and dysautonomia and so many other symptoms. Absolutely. Um, Okay, so next thing I wanted to ask about was uh, edothelitis. Did I yeah. get that right? <laughs> yes, that was good. Um, endotheliitis is really a, a swelling. Endotheliitis. Sorry, um, yes, my bad. You're totally right. Um, it was fine. Look, I had to practice saying dysautonomia that many times <laughs> because it just wouldn't stick. Um, mm. But, yeah, when we have swelling in the endothelial tissue, um, it's a problem really around that vascular tissue more specifically. So endothelial tissue is kind of like the skin inside us, for want of a better term. And so um, it can be really effective by that ACE2 enzyme dysfunction um, and that starts to cause issues with vascular health, blood vessels, bleeding clots, all of those things that we see um, and really comes back to inflammation. So Mm. we're seeing some trends even though we're talking about lots of different drivers that immune regulation, inflammation, gut health, you know, they cover off a lot of these things. So whether it be microthrombus, which is another one and clotting or that endotheliitis, it's all coming back to that big problem of inflammation. Mm. And so how do we step through uh, working on that one? Endotheliitis, yes. So, again, anti-inflammatories. And there's some that are specific. You know, you might extend out from the typical anti-inflammatories that we might think of like curcumin and omega-3 that we've talked about already and start to think about some of the more specific ones for um, mucous membrane health. So things like um, gotcha which is also known as centella by some people, calendula um, is another one. And so, you know, we can drill down and that's the um, asset of our giant toolbox. We can look at, okay, what suits inflammation in this? tissue and what suits inflammation in that tissue so if someone's experiencing um, lots of dysfunction within the mucous membranes inside the gut the type of herb that we might use might be chamomile or um, meadowsweet um, Mm. and and that's different to what they might be seeing if they're experiencing more of a tissue or skin-based mouth symptoms are becoming a little bit more common we might use some of the others. Golden seal would be another one. Um, so yeah, lots of lots of ones to think of when we've got that real heart microvascular issues happening. Um, Dan Shen and motherwort, um, and then you know herbs like magnesium and selenium and zinc, um, uh, all really tie in with the heart health. Natrokinase is another one there. Mm, absolutely, I wanted to bring up um, microvascular issues because that's obviously a huge danger. Like you know. You- have COVID get on a plane, like how much more are you increasing your risk of stroke or heart issues um, if you have something unchecked post-COVID, right? Um, But I also wanted to mention a pharmaceutical intervention after having spoken to a couple of doctors. I'd love to hear if you've been speaking to doctor colleagues about it as well, that low-dose naltrexone 
seems to be a really big card in the deck for long COVID and that anti-inflammatory aspect. Definitely. And I certainly have a lot of autoimmune patients using it, particularly with things like rheumatoid arthritis or thyroid Mm. issues. Um, Yes, in the research. So when I was trawling through, um, I I guess through my work with oncology patients, uh, I'm more than happy to say when I think a pharmaceutical has has it over what we've got. And there are some key key stages and certainly um, LDN would be one of those that we would think um, for some people needs to be co-prescription. What did you just mention there? Sorry, I didn't hear it. Low yeah. dose naltrexone would be oh, okay. LDN. Yeah, would LDN. be LDN. Uh, sorry, it yeah, was the LDN, abbreviation. Sorry. I thought it was a whole other thing. I'm no, like, oh, I don't know yeah, what that same, is. Same. Same, same. So, yeah, LDN um, has lots of research and, mm. and, and is one that you would think of too for, for the microvascular um, and immune regulation issues. Mm-hmm. So everyone is terrified about clots and the vascular uh, remnants of even if you feel fine in every other respect, you don't have the fatigue, you don't have the other things. Um, it's not like everybody's rushing out to just get their blood coag studies done just to be safe, especially when we know in this country our GPs are being pressured, if anything, to do less testing at the moment, which is awful given we're just going through this uh, new virus. Um Do you have some blood markers? Because I think this is an area where it's actually great health insurance to spend the money. Say, don't put it on Medicare if you feel pressured. I want to pay for this. Um, Some markers that just help us check in there on the clotting risk factors. Yeah, I think um, going to services um, like ice cream, I'm not sure or if you're familiar with ice cream, where you can self-fund these or seeing your practitioner and asking what's available. Um, from a clotting perspective, I would probably take a step back and do things like ESR or CRP, home assisting, um, to get an idea of like the inflammation that might be having a specific effect. There are clotting panels, um, but I think it's sometimes, unless you know you're kind of heading that way, almost spending the money in a too-focused way, and I'd start to step back a bit and look at that inflammation. ESR is one of my favourite markers in general. Um, because I think it tells us so much about um, what therapies we can start to use. And so I would, I would think about that. Um, really also um, expanding it out and looking around, are there other um, autoimmune things that I should be considering? So um, getting an ANA, which is anti-nuclear antibodies done, is relatively inexpensive as well and can start to point you in the direction of, might you have microvascular autoimmunity that's been triggered by this? And is there um, more research that needs to be done around getting an INR, which is that coagulation profile done um but um yeah it's tricky i guess anything you test yourself you've got to be able to interpret so um yeah it's it's interesting and i think i would love to see a panel put together of some great general um and and this is maybe something that i'll try and do in the next couple of months a great panel that you could get done um that just gives you a okay i've had the things tested with my doctor they definitely have done an ecg or um, ekg or echo endocardiogram which is the minimum they should be doing Mm -hmm. um what's next that we could do to try and throw that net a bit wider yeah love it Fantastic. Gosh, we're talking about so many things and I'm conscious of the time, but I definitely also want to bring up metabolic dysfunction because that's also, of course, implied in long COVID. Uh, Is this just part of the network, the web that we're trying to deconstruct and build back to health here? 
Yeah, I think unfortunately some people um, will come to having their first um, COVID infection having got already got metabolic issues. And mm. I, I think like anything, this is a reminder of looking after yourself and addressing those metabolic issues, which are really probably one of the most common uh, chronic health uh, complaints in the West. Um, COVID um, doesn't uh, dodge those uh, because of that ACE2 deficit and the impact that has on the cardiovascular health. Um, we certainly see that metabolic issues become more important and more relevant, um, elevated blood glucose levels, um, even patients being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes for the first time or having terrible trouble controlling their insulin post-infection as part of their long COVID picture means that we really have to go back to how can we educate these patients to really make the shift they need to make in their food, um, but also perhaps nutri uh, with nutrients or, or supplements to try and get their metabolic health under control um, mm. because it's doing them no favors at that time unfortunately yeah and it's interesting that you've mentioned the need for protein uh, yes. a couple of times already here and that plays right into the ACE2 deficit it plays into the metabolic health challenges that might be either exacerbated or finally looked at in COVID and long COVID because of their initial risk implications um, so I'd love to ask then, in terms of a, a post-COVID, I'm struggling, I'm now looking at potentially having long COVID, what does a great diet mix look like for those people generally? Yeah, so the research shows that the Mediterranean diet is beneficial. And I think that the truth with the Mediterranean diet is it's because so much research is done in that area. Sometimes some of the other diets don't get a look in. But I guess from an actionable point of view, I would be encouraging my patients to try and get as much whole food as possible, the best quality they can afford. Mm. So we know from the conversations we've had about the herbs that we've talked about that things like our NRF2 herbs are really beneficial. Um, that would extend out to things like all the berries, um, uh, all the vegetables, bright colours, as many as you can have, and being really mindful of the quality of the proteins that you're accessing. So we want things that are um, close to home. We don't want to provide any more chemical load or toxicity load for the body, which is already really struggling. Um, so finding ways to get simple, clean, um, bright coloured fruit and vegetables in, really going back to basics, whole foods. Um, and the worst thing someone can do for themselves, I guess, if they do have that metabolic tendency is sit in bed and eat toast. You know, we've got to really, and that's a way someone can have some support, you know, slow cooked things and um, easy to prepare um, small portions frequently trying to uh, get lots of good things in um, because being sick, I see, I'm sure you see with your tribe, sometimes means people's diets drop and that's mm. the last thing you want to see happen for these people, even with the gut health implications of that drop when their gut's already uh, challenged. Yeah, absolutely. My son uh, came out of the two days of really high fever when we had COVID as a family, bunkered down, hunkered down rather, and um, he's like, can I just have a piece of toast? I'm like, sorry, bud, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the research really supports that too. You know, it's mm. saying like lots of um, polyphenols from all those beautiful foods and dietary fiber was another really interesting one because butyrate is generally low. So just going back to those whole food principles and whatever know, you know makes you feel good, whether it be um, a plant-based diet or whether it be uh, eating keto or whether it be the Mediterranean diet, you know, lean into that. Um, but be mindful that we do need that protein and um, all of those beautiful nutrients from our food. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, so 
we've talked about um, Epstein-Barr virus a couple of times throughout, and uh, we know that with that, the case is sometimes viral reactivation. Are we seeing viral reactivation with COVID? Is that part of long COVID? Yeah, I think that the viral uh, reactivation um, in the research is very much interplay between EBV and long COVID. So one of my first questions, or COVID rather, leading to long COVID, one of my first questions I ask these patients is, do you know if you've had EBV before or glandular fever or CMV, which is cytomegalovirus? Um, And I would say the research is more hinting that um, uh, long COVID occurs when this reactivation of EBV happens in the presence of covid but I'm sure it can go both ways and the information will continue to grow on this. Lots of patients I'm seeing are recovering and slowly getting better from long COVID and then they'll just be hit with whatever the other winter viruses that are going around and they take a big step back. So I think it's a bit of a um, viral soup at the moment that's making it really hard for their immune systems to cope um, Mm. and regulate themselves. Thank you for bringing that up because I think we should make that our last question. It feels like we're all toddlers at daycare, starting daycare for the first time, and we are literally freaking moving from one lurgy to the next. I know, you know, my husband's in hospitality in the Sydney CBD. My son goes to a big co-ed school of 1,400 kids. I work from home, so my um, load and exposure is relatively low, but they're bringing everything home, and, um, and then we all fall down, like the nursery rhyme says. So... What are some of the strategies for the people who might not be necessarily coping with long COVID, but who are on this merry-go-round of viral illness this year um, to to start building that resilience again? Um, Because I've seen some interesting research in how many times one gets COVID, which, I mean, let's all be honest, if you're living in a CBD location, it ain't going to just be once or twice in the next couple of years. Um, but the T cell counts seem to be going down and that's quite concerning. How can we build ourselves up and really, really put some energy into that, some focus on it as a daily habit uh, to ensure that we protect our T cells and all of the other components of our immune system? Yeah, great question. And I'm going to answer this in two ways. Firstly, I'll caveat this with I'm, an, I'm a mum of a um, just 12 and just 14-year-old and the 12-year-old is currently at home sick with an infection. So even when you do all the right things, exactly like you said, mm. we're back when they're told they're picking up their immune system for the first time and if you do the calculations on what you've missed and I'm out of Melbourne you know they've kind of missed two years of cold and flu plus we throw some COVID in there I reckon we're around four infections that we've missed um, that they're trying to catch their immune system up on plus all of the exposure they didn't get from the activities that they would normally do in the community they'd normally be part of so go back to what we know you know when when you're sick and run down or if you're not feeling well you've got to rest don't overdo it really take the time to rest all of the lovely strategies that we talk about um, beautiful food rest lots of convalescent time and then if you're trying to boost your immune system in your situation I'd be saying really the people that are leaving the home are the weakest link for you 
And their immune systems need to be top-notch. So if you've got kids going to childcare, invest in the right types of probiotics that reduce their experience of sick days. There's lots of research around that. Um, just over-the-counter probiotics, am I allowed to mention brands or you would like me to? Yeah, yeah, go for it, of course. Okay, Inner Health Plus, the kids' formula has been really researched. It's a great formula. It's made um, by the same people who make Metagenics and they've done some great research on reducing sick days from gastrointestinal and respiratory infections. So give that to the children that are leaving the home um, to minimise their risk. I'm a big fan of the Asian tree mushrooms, um, super mushroom complex or some other form of mushrooms. You can get lots of great practitioner brands. MediHerb um, Bioconcepts has a new one, but you can also buy it out there. And that really has a positive impact on T cells and the immune system, zinc and C, D. And can I just ask on the mushroom topic, only because the mould community is always at odds, can we, can we not take mushrooms? I feel like I get a yeast infection after mushroom supplements. Yeah, like it, there's so much confusion there. So if only because we have a lot of people yes. in our community yeah. that do come from that, what's the go with mushroom okay, supplements? So, yeah, my first thing to try is turkey towel, being that it's a little bit less yeasty mushroom-like. Um, if you can't tolerate it, don't wipe the mushrooms off. It's sad, but wipe them off. It's not worth it. Then go for more of your um, uh, like quercetin, um, ACE, uh, zinc, like sticking to, and some of the other herbs that you might be able to tolerate a bit better that were the traditional immune herbs, um, you know, whether it be echinacea or andrographis, astragalus, um, and uh, that probiotic should be suitable for everyone. So, yeah, mushrooms are a tricky one. And I guess if you're getting any tickling in the mouth, that's another sign that mushrooms don't suit you. So maybe some of your listeners might notice that before they get other symptoms and if you're getting an oral um, sensation when you have it it's definitely not one that suits you mm, that's such a great tip thank you uh, so dosing up on all of those things and what are the top two foods to consider just avoiding while our immune systems are coming back online oh gosh I could be so I mean obviously junk food and ultra processed food that's a given but even in the whole food realm, um, are there any foods that might be um, just harder on our immune system function? Oh, look, I think, you know, I would be concerned about people who have sensitivities to dairy being cautious to overdo that and swapping to other alternatives or just minimising that at the moment. Mm. I have a real thing with bananas. I feel like the banana industry is going to come after me, but they're, <laughs> moist. they're moist food. Um, I'm sure you can tell people all about the things that happen in the banana industry that mean our bananas don't always come to us um, uh, naturally ripened and they cause lots of mucus. So if your children or yourself are experiencing that really congested sinus type issues and uh, we don't want to have too much of that because we know that those mucus forming foods like bananas and dairy will really kind of stuff you up and make you a bit more congested i would be going for more of the warming foods um you know and putting spices like turmeric and, and um, garlic into those foods to try and just um ad adopt any of those immune strategies that we can to uh lift ourselves back up and, and just keep robust as possible incredible and can you share just to finish off and to finish with long COVID, a case study of hope? Mm, good question. Oh, look, I think 
I might talk a little, rather than so specifically about a case, can I say just at the moment, I saw a real pattern of patients coming in um, who I'd been working with before to resolve their issues and their issues were diverse. It might be women going through perimenopause. It might be men that were stressed at work. It might be people with autoimmune uh, diagnosis or oncology. So it's a huge range of people and they all came at the same stage with long COVID. It was like the wave hit and people started to experience it six or so weeks later. And they're all moving in the right direction. Now, I'm not going to say they're all better. Like I said, some are just walking to the end of their court, but that's coming from having been in bed. That particular case is a patient that has type 1 diabetes uh, and a rheumatoid arthritis that have previously been completely under control with minimal medications. And so it's a long process, but using the strategy, some of which we've talked about today, we're stepping them in the right direction. Hope is like the word in my practice. And so um, there's hope in small things. And sometimes we have to drill down on that, walking the extra meter, um, being able to sit up and see a friend that day, um, being some, able to do something that you love. And so there's, there's many um, cases of that positive people being able to return to work. They might be on a reduced work schedule or going to see the kids sport um, are some of the things that patients have been reported to be able to do. And that's really after a relatively short period of time. I'm talking four to eight weeks. Um, and I'm due to see the whole round of them again um, at the start of next month. So I'll have more to report then. But really, it is getting better. And I think the challenge um, that happens to people sometimes when they've experienced a chronic disease for the first time, which maybe you experienced as well, is it's not better overnight. And so celebrate everything that feels like a step in the right direction. And if you have a bad day or you feel like it goes backwards, you overdo something and you feel exhausted, acknowledge that you're living in a new situation at the moment, but it will get better. And there's lots of people like myself and you who are looking at ways to try and provide that information because I think there's a real bottleneck between the great amount of research that's coming out and the practitioner education uh, and getting that out to the people that need it the most. But it's happening. So, yeah, lots of positivity. Um, and, and like I said, on minimal supplements, lots of um, work on those modifiable lifestyle factors like diet. Yeah. And that's going to mean, you know, for those who do have access to a practitioner, uh, really working with the practitioner on which aspect, which system seems to be down the most, like work really specifically instead yeah. of, as you said, taking all the things and, and stabbing around in the dark. Yes, exactly. And coming out of this, um, you know, quite a big practitioner group that I've had the um, pleasure of working with, we will try to narrow down some direction and set up some um, formalised clinics where we can focus on working with these patients to gather um, clinical experience as well of what's working. Every patient is like an N of one case. Mm. And um, that information is really helpful in how the next person might respond to. So uh, it's a work in process, but luckily I do have the good news to say there's lots happening and, and lots to try. So, yeah, don't give up. Thank you so much, Carla. It was definitely yeah. a message of hope today. So much covered. And I really, really feel so grateful that we're going to be able to help so many people with what we talked about today. So thank Excellent. you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Lotox Life or one word or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life. 
uh, and of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27 and about £25. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lowtoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.